0: Good morning. I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 1. You ever heard the term social media envy before? It's not only the subject of scholarly research, but my guess would be it's a familiar experience to many of you, at least those of you who use social media. Social media envy refers to that unpleasant feeling you get when you're scrolling through some timeline, and you are reminded that everyone else is happier and healthier and wealthier and prettier and just all around better at life than you are. That feeling. It might feel like discontentment. I'm such a loser. My life doesn't look like that. Or it might feel like some bitterness and resentment toward those people whose lives just look so Perfectly curated. A lot of dimensions of social media envy that I would find fascinating to explore, but the widespread phenomenon indicates, I I think most people, it's safe to say, wish they were happier than they are and perceive others to be a lot happier than they may actually be. At, At one point or another in your life, you've probably had some thought like, if only I had more of fill in the blank, I would be so much happier or maybe you've thought if if only i had just had less of this or that stress in my life i would be happier. Blaise Pascal, a 17th century French mathematician and philosopher is famous for saying, you've probably heard this quote before, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man even of those who hang themselves. What do we all want? What motivates everything we do? The desire to be happy. It's the reason that one person stays in bed all morning and neglects the dishes because they just want to be happy. And that mountain is overwhelming. It's the reason that somebody else gets out of bed and does the dishes because they know I just feel so much better when they're done. It's the reason everybody does everything at all. There's a gap between wanting to be happy, which everyone does, and actually being happy, which few seem to be. How about you? How is your joy this morning? How's your contentment, your satisfaction? For the next six Sundays, we're going to be preaching from the book of Psalms. And the Psalms are full of raw and honest human emotions. In fact, John Calvin called the Psalms, in anatomy of the parts Of the soul, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. He referred to it as the anatomy of all the parts of the soul because the Psalms express all the emotions that we are prone to experience as we live by faith in God in this life through the highs and the lows. When the psalmists cry out to God, they honestly express unpleasant emotions like grief and sorrow and fear and doubt as well as The pleasant ones like hope and joy and peace. And and that's one reason that the Psalms have given language to the prayers and the songs of God's people for nearly 3,000 years now. Generation after generation of believers have found in the Psalms language that resonates. That's exactly how I'm feeling. That's what I'm going through. That sounds like my life, and I can relate to that. And so we pray them and we sing them back to God. Today we're going to be in Psalm 1, which is the gateway. It's the entrance to the whole Psalter. Commentators ask the question, why are the Psalms arranged the way that they are? There are 150 of them. They're not in chronological order. They're not in thematic order. We can't really make out why they arranged them the way that they did, but everybody's in agreement. Psalm 1 is at the beginning on purpose, and it is an introduction to the entire Psalter. And the very first word in the very first Psalm Is the word happy? At least that's how the NRSV translates it, the ESV and others translate it blessed. But the Hebrew word here, there is a Hebrew word for blessed, like to receive favor from God. That's a different word. This word is the Hebrew word for the state of happiness or contentment. Happy. Very first word, the very first psalm. So, what does God have to say to you about your happiness? Not just in Psalm 1, but throughout all of the Psalms. I want to invite you, if you're physically able, to stand with me out of our reverence for God and his word as I read from Psalm 1. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, we thank you for your word. We receive it. We hear it with hearts of faith, ready to do your will. We trust you. And every word that proceeds from your mouth, and we we pray that you would cause us to live according to your word. May you, Direct us into all joy and peace in believing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 1, verse 1, blessed is the man. Or I think, better translation, happy. Happy is the man. That's how the Psalms begin. And as the ESV notes, the, the word there in the Hebrew uh, denotes the singular Hebrew word for man. Blessed is that man. Man, That that means this guy here that the psalmist is talking about is a representative of a godly person. He he represents godliness. So so I, I think this line could be paraphrased, something like, see that man there? He is happy. Look at that man right there. Pay attention. You want to be happy? Look at that guy because he is happy. And at first, Psalm 1 almost sounds like one of those billboards or commercials you know those ones that show really happy really beautiful people enjoying life and all using the same product and the implied message is all you have to do to be happy like them to be successful popular good looking whatever like that just drink the same drink wear those jeans drive that car look how happy they are when they're using that product Right, And those ads must work because advertisers keep spending millions of dollars on them. So they're effective, although on one rational level, we all can see right through it and go, wait a minute, all of that happiness and popularity and bliss from a stick of gum? Yeah, right. But Psalm 1 is not a billboard. It's not a commercial. It, it is a word from God. It's not selling you happiness. It is promising you happiness. Not to be purchased. It is offering it to you for free, guaranteed with a promise from God. And and this is what is so incredible. Why did God inspire the psalmist to write this description? To announce to the world, look at that man, he is happy. Isn't it because God wants you to be happy in him forever? And he's telling you how. You want happiness? Everybody wants happiness. You know you do. Even somebody says, no, I don't want that. Well, then what do you want? You want something, and whatever it is that you want, even if you want to sit there and pout and be miserable, when you do that, you do that because you think, that's what's going to make me happy. If I could just brood on this a little bit, that will feel good. You want to be happy, and God is telling you how. And the Psalms deal with all the realities of life and all the resulting emotions. And in the coming weeks, you'll hear some of these envy toward the wicked when they look so fat and sleek, I think is the language in Psalm 73, doubt and unbelief toward God, despair that comes from your own unconfessed, unrepentant sin, suffering that's caused by relentless enemies who oppose you at every turn, grief caused by the betrayal of one's closest friend. All of these experiences of life are right here in the Psalms, but engraved over the archway at the entrance of it all is this line, happy is that man. The Psalms were written for the sake of your joy in God to help you learn how to fight the fight of faith through the highs and lows of life for the sake of your joy in God. That, that's the offer to all who enter here. God wants you to be happy in him forever. Let, let me say that a few different ways so that it sinks in for you. God wants you to be happy in him forever. Do you struggle to believe that God wants you to be happy? I mean, you want to be happy. That, that's one thing, right? But do you believe that God wants you to be happy? Or say it another way, God wants you to be happy. And I know that some of you struggle to believe that. You have no problem believing God wants other people to be happy. God blesses, sure, that man over there, look at him, isn't his life great? Good for him. God is against me, I can tell. Or put the emphasis elsewhere. God wants you to be happy in him forever. Some of you doubt that. God doesn't care about happiness Moral purity, yes. Strict religion, yes. Holiness, yes. Happiness, God doesn't care about my happiness, you might think. How could he when he's always frowning at me? Or so you envision. God wants you to be happy in him forever. And some of you reject that. Happiness, that comes from more money more friends, more success, more sex, more whatever, God is about as enjoyable as a, a root canal. The Bible is burdensome. Christianity is restrictive. There's no happiness in God. Happiness is out there, and religion is just a restraint on true joy. No, no matter which of those you need to hear in particular, Psalm 1 is for you, and it describes for you how you can be happy in God forever. When, when everyone else in the world is chasing happiness elsewhere, how can you be happy in God Forever And it's structured in three parts, verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, verses 5 and 6. And each set has a contrast between this righteous, happy man and the wicked. So we're going to look at those in turn. First, the source of the happy life, then the nature of the happy life, and finally, the future of the happy life. Let's look at verses 1 and 2, the way to a happy life. Blessed or happy is the man happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Maybe you've heard it said that there's a difference between joy and happiness. Maybe you've said that too at some point. Happiness is fleeting, they say. Joy is lasting. Happiness is external. Joy is internal. Happiness is selfish. Joy is selfless. It's popular uh, to hear that kind of contrast between joy and happiness. And I think when people say things like that, they're trying to make a valid point. There really is a difference, right, between a frivolous, fleeting kind of pleasure on the one hand and a a deep and lasting pleasure on the other. We know that. Joy differs from joy in quality as well as quantity. But the difference between cheap knockoff pleasure and the premium, high-end, top-shelf stuff is not located in the word you use to describe it. You could call it happiness, you could call it joy, you could call it bliss, you could call it contentment, satisfaction, whatever you want. It doesn't matter what you call it. The difference is located in the source of the happiness. What is the object of your delight? What is satisfying you? Someone walking around with a pet rock and a happy smile on his face might look happy, but he does not know the kind of pleasure that a parent feels in their child, right? Different quality of happiness, Who or what gives you pleasure? That's the question. What do you desire the most? Where do you believe you will be satisfied? The man in Psalm 1 is happy because he knows where happiness is found. He knows the way to happiness. And he knows where it's not found. There are two parts to this, avoiding and pursuing. That's the contrast that's set up in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 states the negative. The happy man does not walk. He does not sit, he does not stand with those who reject God and seek their pleasure outside of God. Rather, verse 2 states the positive, the happy man does, in fact, delight himself in God and his word. And and that need to avoid and pursue is pretty simple to understand, right? If somebody decides, all right, I'm in poor health and I want to be healthier, that involves avoiding and pursuing. Certain restrictions are going to be necessary. You, You need to avoid large amounts of cholesterol and bad fats and too much sugar, and you need to cut back on some processed foods, and, and you, you should probably stop smoking so many cigarettes and limit your alcohol intake. and there are things to cut out of your life, right? But if you just cut everything out, easy way to do that would be stop eating and drinking. That's not the way to a healthy life. Health also involves putting on some new practices like maybe eat some more fruits and vegetables, maybe get active, start walking, riding your bike, get your heart rate up, drink more water eat healthier fats, right? So some things have to be put on. There's there's avoiding and pursuing. And notice who and what the blessed man avoids in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There's a, a poetic progression here from walking, moving, to stopping and standing still, to sitting down. And this seems to indicate three escalating levels of rebellion against God. What starts with thinking like the world, walking in the way that the world counsels and advises, moves to living like the world, standing in that way, planting your feet firmly there, and finally belonging to the world, sitting down and being comfortable with those who scoff at God and all of his ways. And at each level, the thing that they all have in common is the people people that you associate with, the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers. The the question is, who is counseling you? Who is influencing you and your vision of the happy life? Who's telling you where happiness is found? Who, Who do you get advice from? Who do you look up to and follow and emulate? John Calvin said about this verse, the first step to living well is to renounce the company of the ungodly. Otherwise, it is sure to infect us with its own pollution. The first step. Not the whole of it, there's a lot more to it than that, but the first step to living well is to renounce the company of the ungodly. And it it doesn't mean that as Christians we stop pursuing relationships with non-Christians for the sake of the gospel, I want to clarify that, but you know the difference between the two, right? It's one thing to proactively pursue relationships with your neighbors who are far from God, show them kindness, hospitality, generosity, pray for them, etc., in order to build a relationship with them in hopes of bringing them to Jesus. It is another thing, and you know the difference, to build your closest, deepest friendships with people who disbelieve God, dishonor God, disobey God. So the question is, who do you spend most time with? Who do you most enjoy spending time with? Are those people who love God or reject God? Parents, who who do your kids spend most of their time with? The people you associate with have an influence on you and what you believe will make you happy. Who do you socialize with? Who do you recreate with? It's one reason that at Emmaus Road, we've put such an emphasis on community, that we think the people that we sing with and pray with and read the Bible with should also be the people that we also enjoy spending time with, that we eat with and recreate with, because they will be influencing us in how we live. What the blessed man in Psalm 1 demonstrates is that friendships are never neutral, never neutral. You are influenced by your close associates, by your friends. You are influenced by what they love, what they value, what they enjoy. You're influenced by their humor by their priorities and pursuits, their attitudes toward God, and some of you have been lying to yourselves, trying to rationalize the disproportionate time you spend with people who don't love God. And you might tell yourself, well, I'm trying to influence them for good, or they're just more fun than the Christians I know, or whatever it is you tell yourself, but just consider Psalm 1 a gracious warning from God. God wants you to be happy forever, and he is kindly telling you it's time to make some changes in your social life. Your soul is at stake in who you associate with. But happiness doesn't come merely from avoiding bad counsel. There's, there's a positive here, verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Verse 2 is structured with this common element in Hebrew poetry called a chiasm. Think of a, the shape of a boomerang. And the flight path of a boomerang going out and coming back, that's how a chiasm works. Structures like A, B, B, A. Look at it closely. Is it on the screen there? His delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates. So you've got the beginning and the end, delighting and meditating and right in the middle, like at the corner of the boomerang, the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord. That's how a chiasm works. It draws your attention to that and it punches with that impact the law of the Lord. This is the psalmist's way of saying God's law, God's word, God's revelation, God's way is the only alternative to the counsel of the wicked. This is the true source of all joy. You want to know how to be happy? It is revealed for you in God's law. That man is happy because he follows God's word. See, everybody is living by faith. Everybody. everybody wants to be happy and everybody is living by faith, following whatever they think will make them happy because somebody else told them or somebody else looks happy following that. The question is, what do you believe will satisfy and secure you? You will either trust the so-called wisdom of the world, which is often enticing, right? The reason the counsel of the wicked works is because it's not just blatantly obvious bad counsel like, why don't you rob that bank over there? Don't like your mother-in-law? Just kill her. It's not like that, Right? It's much more subtle and subversive than that. And you will either trust the subtle wisdom of the world that tells you turn away from God and his ways, do your own thing, pursue pleasure outside of God, or you will rely on the all good, infinitely wise God who made you and knows what's good for you. Knows what you were made for, that you were found made to find your happiness in God himself. Psalm 1 is meant to convince you God knows what is good for you and what will make you happy. Listen to him. That man is happy because he delights in God's word. He meditates on God's word. I want to be clear here. The, the prescription for the unhappy soul is not merely read the Bible more. Some people kind of give that impression sometimes. and They're well-meaning. But you know, are you depressed? Just read two Bible verses and... Call me in the morning. God's word is important. right? Yes, absolutely. But there's more here than just reading the Bible. Any literate person can read the Bible and derive absolutely no benefit from it. But everyone who delights in the word of God, who reads it and says, yes, yes, that's true. That's right. That's good. I trust that. I believe that. I submit to that. I'm resolved to do that. Everyone who does that will find joy in God. There is glory to behold in the word of God. There is treasure to be found here. Even if you say, I've tried, I've read the Bible, nothing happened, there's treasure here. There is value to see. David prays in Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. How gracious of God. He hasn't left us in the dark, wandering around, trying to figure it out on our own. He has made known to us, this is the way of life. David says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Those who read the word of God and think it's nothing but restrictive, confining limitations on their joy have not yet seen and understood. God is making known to you the path of life, leading you to pleasures forevermore. All revealed right here in his word. And if you don't delight in God's word, what do you do? That's why meditating on it is so important. To meditate on God's word is to think deeply about it. Consider Psalm 143 verse 5 that uses a series of similar words. This helps fill it out. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I remember, meditate, ponder. You get the idea. This is Christian meditation is not like Eastern meditation where you empty your mind and think about nothing. Christian meditation is fill your mind and think about truth. Fill it with God's word and then sit there and wrestle with, what does that mean? Why does that go together? What is God saying to me there? And as you think about it and meditate on it and ponder it, that's when you begin to see glory in it and your heart feels delight in God's word and the truth of God that he reveals there. To meditate on God's word means to think about it also with a view to doing it. We want to be hearers and doers of the word. There's a close parallel, Psalm one. Probably the psalmist has Joshua 1.8 in mind when he writes this. Listen to the parallels, Joshua 1.8. This book of the law, God said to Joshua as they were going into the promised land, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, same word in Psalm 1, and then you will have good success. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do, not just like sit there and think for a long time and then get up and go on with your, your day. No, sit there and think about what is God calling me to believe about him and how does that affect my life? What should I think and feel and do in response to the truth that he reveals here? The, the way to happiness, this is what Psalm 1 reveals, is to be right with God by trusting and obeying his word. That's the way to happiness. Let's look at verses three and four, the nature of this happy life. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Verses three and four describe the happy man not in terms of what he has, which is how we tend to think in a very materialistic society. Happiness comes from what you have or what you don't have. Psalm one describes the happy man in terms of what he is. it, It doesn't say Happy is the man who has a million dollars, a fancy car, a beautiful wife. It says, happy is that man, he's like a tree. What is it about a tree that's so great? He is like a fruitful tree. Think about what trees do. They they take dirt and water and sunlight and turn it into something tangible and beneficial to others, for others to enjoy. So this is not a constant emotional high kind of happiness. This is The happiness of a fruitful life over the long haul. These verses do not define happiness by this man's lack of trouble in life, easy circumstances, carefree life. No, he experiences all the seasons of life, goes through them all. He experiences, you can assume, the droughts and the storms, but he's firmly planted and he's well watered because he's well watered. He's fruitful even when there's a drought, even when the heat is turned up because his happiness is not dependent on his easy, trouble-free life. If, if you are interested in real happiness in the here and now, not just you know, pie in the sky, by and by, but happiness in this world, the sin-cursed world where tragedies befall you and people betray you, you need to be like this man. He is planted by a source of water a source of satisfaction and security that can and will sustain you in all seasons. I mean, anyone can be happy when things are briefly going their way, right? You have days like that. Wow, everything's just going my way. It's all sunshine and rainbows. What you need is to be happy when nothing's going your way and you know the AC goes out and your car breaks down on the same day and your child breaks their arm and you know how those days and, and weeks go and you just feel like everything is broken. Nothing is working. In my life, you need to be planted by a source of nourishment. That's the kind of happiness that he has. The end of verse 3 says, in all that he does, he prospers. And, and when you hear that, don't lose the metaphor. It's not shifting to he has lots of money and fame and success. Although those sometimes are blessings from God. It's still talking about the metaphor of a tree. To, be pros- to, to prosper in everything is to bear good fruit at all times even when the heat is turned up. And and if that kind of happiness is not enough to induce you to delight yourself in God, then consider the happiness of the wicked. There's a contrast here. Verse 4 says, the wicked are not like that, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Psalm 1 does not deny that sometimes the wicked really do succeed, really do make a lot of money, really do look really happy when you watch them. In fact, if you want to read more about that, if that ever bothers you, go read Psalms 37 and 73, laments written specifically about that. Why is it that people who disobey God look like they have it all and to the day they die? How could that be fair? In fact, Psalm 73, the psalmist prays, as for me, I almost lost my footing when I thought about that. I was so bothered by that, I almost threw it all away. The psalms don't deny that the wicked sometimes look like they prosper. Wicked people do acquire possessions. They do achieve great success in the world, but they are like chaff swept away by the wind. Chaff is what's left when the grain has been separated from the straw, the husks. And in the days before modern farming with combines that are like, you know, magic, they would separate the grain from the straw, and the farmer could toss it all up in the air on a windy day and let the wind blow the chaff away. And the grain was heavy enough to fall back down, and the chaff would just be driven away, and it's driven away, and who cares? Because it is good for nothing. It is weightless, it is worthless. And that's what the psalmist is saying. A life full of fleeting pleasures apart from God is a worthless life. That is a wasted life, a weightless life. The contrast between a firmly planted, well-watered tree bearing fruit every season, and chaff driven away by the wind, it could not be greater. And Psalm 1 is setting out before you, which one do you want to be true of your life? Which one describes you? This promise in Psalm 1 has motivated my daily Bible reading probably more than any other promise in Scripture on a more consistent basis. Many times, I get up in the morning and I just don't feel like reading the Bible and meditating on God's Word. You probably can't relate, but I feel tired and the Bible doesn't seem interesting in the morning and I have other things to do and I want to get on with my day. And so I turn my mind to the promise in Psalm 1 and I just remind myself. The man who delights in God's word and meditates on it day and night day and night is like a tree, a fruitful tree, planted by water, bearing fruit in season. Whatever he does prospers. And I just think about that for like 5 seconds and it doesn't take long to go. Oh, yeah I want that. I want that to be true of me. I want my life to be like that. And then by faith I read okay, God, I'm going to read your word. I'm going to meditate on it. And it's not like in the moment I necessarily just feel like so fruitful. I'm just trusting. I'm going to meditate on your word. You're going to keep your promise. There is a kind of happiness available for me in you that nothing in this world can supply. And I believe you. That's the kind of happiness that God offers to you here, which is the kind of happiness you should want. Finally, the future of the happy life. Look at verses five and six. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the conclusion of the matter. Short psalm, conclusion is introduced with that word, therefore, there are two paths before you. The way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. And everybody on either path is after the same thing. All men seek happiness. Why are some people taking the wicked path? Because they want to be happy and they're convinced that's where happiness lies. That's what their wicked friends told them. They see how happy their friends are who reject God and they're convinced. They're seeking happiness. Why are some people trusting in God, walking in his ways? Because God in his grace has opened their eyes to see this is the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy forever. Those two paths lead to completely different outcomes. Verse 5 warns the future of the wicked is judgment and the end of all happiness. That, that is, should be a tremendously sobering thought to you. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. The judgment refers to court, judicial proceedings. Picture a courtroom-like setting. The wicked are standing trial. All the accusations against them are totally true. We say this in English, right? When someone has no argument or defense in court, we say he doesn't have a leg to stand on. That's exactly the sense of verse 5. In God's courtroom, the wicked has no defense, no excuse, no alibi. He will be found guilty and cast down. He will not stand in the judgment. The whole book will be thrown at him. What does it mean when when it says sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous? The Old Testament frequently warns that the one who disobeys God will be cut off. And it uses language like cut off from his people, Genesis 17. Cut off from Israel, Exodus 12. Cut off from the congregation, Exodus 12. Again, cut off from my presence, Leviticus 22. Cut off, cut off, cut off from the people, from the congregation, from the gathering of God's people. Put outside of fellowship with God and his people forever. So verse 5 describes this curse on those who break God's law. They will be cast down and they will be cut off forever. And that kind of Parallelism in Hebrew poetry, again, is just meant to emphasize the point. The point is the certainty of God's judgment. This will happen. You might not see it in your day. They might look fat and happy all the way to the day that they die. Make no mistake, they will be cut down and cast off forever. They will not prosper or endure. That last line says, The way of the wicked will perish. To perish, Is to cease, to come to an end. It's God's curse on sin. Psalm 37, 20 says, But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke, they vanish away. Psalm 73, 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Just just contemplate that unpleasant thought for a moment. The, The happiness of the wicked, no matter what. Kind of pleasures they may experience in this life by God's common grace, it will come to a permanent end. It might be 10 years from now, 30 years from now, 80 years from now, but the joy of the wicked will find, the joy that the wicked find in this life is the only joy they will ever know. And that last breath that they draw will be the last good thing they ever experience. Isn't that sobering? It should break our hearts for the lost. It should arrest your attention if you're tempted to believe the counsel of the wicked who are telling you there's joy over here when you know the end of the matter, where that's going. But the righteous, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, verse 6 says. They have an unending future of happiness in God. What does it mean that the Lord knows the way of the righteous? What kind of comfort is meant for you in that? There's a close parallel in Psalm 37, 18 through 20. Listen to these words. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They're not put to shame in evil times, in the days of famine. They have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the days of the blameless. To be known by the Lord then is to be protected by him to be preserved by him, to be kept by him forever, and in order to be truly happy today, you have to have some guarantee about your happiness in the future. Otherwise, at any moment, as happy as you might feel like you are today, you're always gonna be plagued by the thought, but what about when this ends? You experienced that on vacation, right? This is awesome, oh no, we have to go home in two days. The next day, this is so great, except ah, we gotta go home tomorrow. And your joy diminishes as you think about the end of the joy that you have. But when you have a kind of joy and when you think about, when is this going to end? Never. How long does this endure? Forever. That is joy. That's why that man is happy. Because God knows him. He's in right relationship with God. He trusts God. He walks in his ways. That man is happy because he walks in God's ways, his life bears fruit, and God will keep him forever. And you might think, good for that guy. How can that be true for me? And this, I think, is the glory of Psalm 1. Here's how you can be sure that happiness, the happiness of the man in Psalm 1 is for you. Because there's actually only one man who Never walked in the counsel of the wicked. Never stood in the way of sinners. Never sat in the seat of scoffers. Only one man. Only one man in the history of the world who perfectly delighted in God's law and kept it completely. Obeyed God always. Jesus is the man to whom Psalm 1 points. That man. That man is happy and blessed. Psalm 1 points to Jesus. But it doesn't point to Jesus simply as the happy man, but also as the man who was cast down and cut off and suffered the curse for sin that you deserve. He, though blameless and innocent, was treated like the wicked. He suffered the curse for sin so that you, you who have walked in the way of the wicked, you have sat in the seat of scoffers, you have mocked God and his ways, you have broken all of God's commands, the spirit or the letter, you deserve that. But Jesus endured that for you in your place. And so just think about this. He was cast down. And yet you can say about Jesus today, because he lives, he is like a tree planted by rivers of water. He bears fruit. Everything he does prospers. That's how you know this promise is good. Because though he was afflicted, suffered Agonizing torture, suffered and endured the curse for sin, the promise is proved true in Him. And so you can be sure that if you are in Him, then the promise is good for you. God will keep His word to you. So, where is happiness found? In right relationship with God. Through Jesus Christ, as you trust Him and walk in His ways. In Him is joy. Forever. So turn. If, if, there's, if there's some unconfessed sin in your life, turn. There are friendships you're keeping that are influencing you in wicked ways. Turn. Rely on Jesus for your satisfaction and your security now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we know you are... Gracious and good because you speak to us. You speak to us in powerful ways through your word. Thank you for the, the variety of genres through which you speak. The Psalms are so good for our souls. And how kind you are to counsel us and lead us in the way that we should go. To point us to your son, Jesus, who is our hope. What a blessing it is to have our sins forgiven in Christ, to know that we will never taste your wrath. We will never experience your fury. We will only ever know your pleasure and your favor today and tomorrow and the day after that, on and on into eternity, an unending future of happy tomorrows secured for us by Jesus. We're trusting you. Lord, would you make our lives fruitful, that we would overflow and abound with fruit for your glory and for the good of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.